0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we meet a former Canadian Special Forces member who helped evacuate Canadians from Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul last August. He is now turning his attention to helping those trying to flee the war in Ukraine as well. We speak to one of the few analysts who predicted Vladimir Putin would indeed invade Ukraine. But what lies ahead now that Putin's plans have gone so terribly wrong? With more people now returning to the office after working remotely, we look into how to overcome the anxieties and challenges of heading back to work. But first, Pope Francis formally apologized to a delegation of Indigenous leaders and residential school survivors today at the Vatican for what he called the deplorable abuses suffered by Indigenous peoples in residential schools and the Catholic Church's role. We speak to one survivor who had long fought for this apology and who was there when it was delivered. But we begin with this. There are some dates that you know will be marked down in our collective history. And April 1st, 2022 is one of them. This morning, Pope Francis formally apologized for what he called the deplorable abuses suffered by Indigenous peoples in residential schools and the Catholic Church's role in them. Words survivors had waited decades for. Speaking through a translator in Italian, he told a delegation of about 190 First Nation Inuit and Metis leaders, survivors, young people, Quote, I want to say with all my heart, I am very sorry.
1: For the deplorable conduct of these members of the Catholic Church, I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. I also feel shame, I'm saying it now and I'm repeating it, sorrow and shame for the role that a number of Catholics, particularly those with educational responsibilities, have had in all these things that wounded you.
0: Big words from Pope Francis today. The apology followed meetings earlier this week with smaller parts of that delegation where they told him directly what happened in residential schools. The Pope also announced he will visit Canada, but no date yet. Probably around July 26th, we're told. Here's former Assembly of First Nations National Chief Phil Fontaine who had long fought for this apology and was there today.
2: I didn't think he would say, I am sorry. I didn't think I would hear him say how he felt shame for uh, and guilt for what the church did to our people.
0: Fontaine put the abuses of residential schools in the national spotlight when he spoke about his own experiences to more than 20 years ago now. Of course, the residential schools were overseen by the Canadian government, administered by church groups. They ran from the 1880s to 1990s. More than 150,000 Inuit, Métis, and First Nation kids were forced to attend those schools, designed to strip them of their language, culture, and identity. More than 4,000 are believed to have died, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In the past year alone, of course, large numbers of unmarked graves have been found on the sites of those former schools. The TRC also urged an apology from the Pope in 2015 as part of its calls to action. Inuit leader Natan Obed was also in Rome today. Behind the cover-ups, behind the indifference over 100, over 100 years, behind the lies, behind the lack of justice... This Pope, Pope Francis, decided to go right through it and decided to speak words that First Nations, Inuit and Métis have been longing to hear for decades. Former Assembly of First Nations Regional Chief for Manitoba Ken Young is a residential school survivor taken from his home at age eight to a place he's described as being more like a prison young was the first indigenous graduate from the faculty of law of the university of manitoba he's long been part of this fight for an apology he even traveled to rome in 2009 when indigenous leaders met with pope benedict benedict did not issue an apology back then so with more now on the words the impact of what pope francis had to say today and the reaction ken young joins me from rome welcome to the show thank you so much for your time tonight
3: i'm looking forward to our uh our uh, discussion and exchange.
0: Tell me a bit about just about the day.
3: Today is a culmination of uh, many, many years of uh, uh, diligent work by a lot of people over the years and uh, leadership. And uh, and in particular, Phil Fontaine was was here with us and he's been a huge help in uh, getting through through to this day. And, uh, I, uh, today was, uh, was was very eventful. Of course, we, uh, we expected that the Pope was going to, uh, apologize. We didn't know in what, in, in, in what context, what context.
0: Yeah. What was it like to be there to hear Pope Francis utter those words?
3: As a survivor, of course, I, uh, I was happy that, uh, that, as, that aspect of the experience of our people uh, was put aside by, was set aside by the Catholic Church, and uh, the Anglican Church apologized many years ago. The Archbishop uh, of Canterbury did, and the bishops of Canada did, and uh, the churches across the country did as well, and they issued a the, very public apology, and, uh, and today... Catholic Church, which ran three quarters of the Indian residential schools, uh, came through.
0: How important were these words today, do you think? And, and what well, do they signify?
3: I think, uh, I think my view is that uh, the government of Canada has to uh, come into the picture because it was the government of Canada that uh, created a policy which resulted in the churches entering into agreements to uh, open up these uh, institutions so that uh, children could be put in, put placed there under the guise of education. When, in, in fact, it was uh, an, the assimilation policy being implemented by, uh, by Canada. And uh, it was, uh, in my opinion... Genocide. So uh, it's uh, it uh, today was uh, was was a day to uh, move forward on trying to uh, fix what it is that uh, been destroyed by uh, the experience of residential schools.
0: Ken, you were there, you were in the Vatican um, years ago. How different has this trip been this week compared to previous trips? And and how would you describe that in terms of a step forward? Night
3: and day for me.
0: Right. I, uh, it it was personal for me. In two thousand and
3: nine, when I arrived here, we went to the the Vatican. And the first day that we were there, the, the Pope was uh, the Pope was outside in front of the cathedral, about you know, fifty feet from me where I was sitting, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't like him. For some reason, I couldn't uh, see myself going into to, to uh, for the audience that, that that happened the next day. I didn't go. Wow. Uh, others went, and uh, and uh, and then he issued the uh, what looked like an apology, but wasn't.
0: So Pope Benedict, of course, someone that you didn't feel comfortable with, but a different story this week with Pope Francis.
3: Oh, absolutely! It uh, was night and day. Uh, people were uh, were ecstatic today when uh, when they were leaving the uh, leaving the uh, uh, that's where we were. Uh, yeah, the part, of the, uh, part of the part of the the Catholic. Uh, complex
0: you're also a lawyer tell me in what was this a formal apology what was specifically was the pope apologizing for and and is it enough is it enough of an apology
3: well he uh he uh he was uh, he was quite uh explicit i mean he asked god for, for god's forgiveness He wanted to say, he wanted to say to us with all of his heart that I am very sorry. Yeah, he was, uh, he was quite uh, explicit in saying that he was, uh, he felt shame, uh, sorrow and shame for the role that the number of Catholics particularly those with educational responsibilities have had in all these things that wounded you and the abuses you suffered and in the lack of respect shown for your identity, your culture, and even your spiritual, uh, your spiritual values. All these things are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and he apologized. I, uh, he, uh, it's quite. Uh, it's a, It's a, It's quite a well thought out reason uh, apology.
0: Yeah, I'm reading and, it uh, now. Uh, he said the content of the faith cannot be transmitted in a way contrary to the faith itself, and he says I also feel yeah. shame, and I'm saying I also feel shame, which is which are from a pope. Those are those are those are words you don't often hear.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it was uh, it was a very uh, very good day for the.
0: For well, the people uh, who
3: travel there, who kind who of Catholic uh, uh, run residential schools? Um,
0: what was the mood like then when you came out of that of that room? Once it was said, what was the mood like within the within the large group of people that were there? What was the overall sense of what had just happened?
3: You know, on the on the bus ride back, uh, people were quiet, They were pensive, and uh, but you know there was no. Uh, there was no sense of animosity or bad feelings. I, I, I thought that uh, people were, uh, were uh, content and that they were happy with what, uh, what transpired in that room today.
0: There is talk now of him, I think he mentioned it today, of him coming to Canada. How important is it to you and everyone else that he deliver this apology here?
3: Well, it's actually important because, first, well, one, he made a commitment today that he'd be here. And that uh, it's expected that the Catholic Church should apologize in the land and in the territory in which he, the wrongs were done. That would complete the, uh, that would complete the picture, would complete the experience, it would complete the expectation that, uh, that those who were abused uh, expect.
0: Kim Young, I want to ask you just in the in the long road to reconciliation, how, in, how important is today? Just to put it into perspective, how important was that apology in the long road to reconciliation? Do you think?
3: Well, this completes the uh, well. The truth you can't have reconciliation without truth. This apology today means that uh, what has been what the people have been saying over the years, the survivors, the truth. He spoke the truth to the, the Pope. He acknowledged it. He accepted it. And now he's going to he apologize. So the road to a full reconciliation is uh, well on the way.
0: And you've been fighting this fight or you've been calling for, these, for this truth and this recite reconciliation for a very long time. Did you think that you would Do you honestly think that you would live to see the day when the Pope was going to apologize for what had happened?
3: Well, I was optimistic. I was optimistic in 2009. We thought that uh, what Bo Penedict said was uh, was good, was sufficient. We tried to convince ourselves mentally that... uh, that it was good, but there were people who didn't, uh, who didn't accept it. And, uh, and I understand why. And, uh, now it's, uh, it's done. And, uh, I, uh, I always thought, uh, that, uh, the day would come when, uh, when the church would, uh, would do what it did today. I, uh, I never gave up hope.
0: Ken Young, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you for uh, having me. I really appreciated my uh, time with you.
0: We've talked a lot this week about the massive number of people fleeing the fighting in Ukraine. It's at 4.1 million now. There's a website the UN hosts to fill you in on the updates of those numbers. Today, it's up to 4.1 million. That's in just five weeks. That's an astonishing number, even by the scale of people fleeing other conflicts, such as the war in Syria. There's an even greater number of people displaced inside the country or trapped in what is defined as a conflict zone. Four million people have left, six million are deplaced, 12 million are believed to still be trapped in the fighting or in areas where there is a risk of being hurt. So there are many efforts underway to help those still in harm's way get to safety. And one man who's now turned his attention to that mission is Dave Lavery. If you've heard his name before, it's because you may remember him as being the lone Canadian at Kabul's international airport when the Taliban seized control of the capital and the country. Canadian Dave, as he became known, filled that gap after embassy staff left on those evacuation flights and in the four days before Canadian forces arrived to help. He helped more than 100 Canadian passport and visa holders escape the country amid all that chaos. Well, now the former founding member of JTF2, which is the elite counterterrorism unit of the Canadian forces and founder of Raven Ray Resources, is turning his attention to Ukraine, where he and a team have set up in Poland and are already working to get people out and move supplies in. Dave Lavery joins me now from, or Dave Lavery rather, joins me now from Dubai. Dave, thanks so much for being here.
4: My pleasure, Ben. How are you doing?
0: Good. Um, I, I guess I should ask, how are things going in Poland? I understand you have embarked on a new um, initiative, essentially, if we can use the word that way, of trying to find, locate and, and, res- and save at least um, interpreters that have worked for the Canadian government inside Ukraine.
4: Well, I mean, uh, like everybody, uh, you know, we were all busy doing whatever we were doing anywhere in the world. And in this case, I was in Turkey. Uh, linking up with my son for the first time since the evacuation of Afghanistan and meeting our cats that we had evacuated that were quarantined in UK that were being able to be brought to Turkey. So we were there trying to relax and then the war uh, kicked off. Um, So then we were getting calls and then we started putting our plans together because as you know, uh, we're still heavily involved with the Afghan campaign and we're supporting the great NGO Amalora who takes the lead on the, uh, you know, the Canadian evacuations, etc. So a few of our friends and partners now uh, with CanAid, uh, we decided let's, uh, let's do what we do well and do best. And let's provide our skill sets with helping, you know, the people, um, and we understand that it was going to be it's going to be a different setup towards Afghanistan. So we, we stated let's do a business feasibility study. Let's get into Poland, let's do a ground uh, analysis. Let's find out who's who, let's venture into Ukraine, let's see what's in Ukraine for us t- to assist. How can we assist? How can we forge forward? Uh, what is the supply routes like? Uh, what is the demand? What is it actually like and what's required? So it was a really fast uh, pace. We went in for the first 7, 10 days, got a great understanding on what was going to happen, was able to move a few families here and there, uh, bring supplies in, get them to the end user in Ukraine, which was important, you know, especially medical supplies, food supplies, baby supplies, um, et cetera. And then try to link up with a lot of people that were coming in and wanted to volunteer and help out, and then understand what would that actually look like. Because as you probably have been reading, there's a lot of Canadians, a lot of international milita- ex-military guys in country wanting to do their thing uh, to support the Ukraines, and not just the Ukraines, the better cause, and the, you know uh, this injustice that is happening. So it's Ben, it's, it, it's been a whirlwind. Uh, So that's phase one, and then phase two, our other partners came back in, we're taking a little bit of a break, uh, just to grab some administration, try to raise some more donor funds, the donor awareness supplies, and then I'm going to be flying back in uh, very soon to Poland, where we have a base close to the border, uh, in Ustrychydon, probably uh, made a bad bad, uh, pronouncing of that name, but very close. And then we have a stage area inside uh, Ukraine, close to Lviv. And then we're staging uh, further to the east of Ukraine. So that's where we're at right now. We're moving some vulnerable people. And as you know, they're mostly uh, all females, uh, young kids and some elderly, but from our accounts, normally the elderly, they do not come back. They want to stay where they're at. And it's sort of sad to see that family split and leave the moms and dads. They don't want to leave. They want to stay at stay there, and they're staying there. So that's what's actually happening. I, I tried to condense it as quick as I could. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. I, I guess one of the things that some of the early, uh, just when you first arrived, there was this attempt in in this case to at least try to track down people who had worked for the Canadian government as interpreters, similar to what you'd done in Afghanistan. I, I gather, though, it is a very different environment and a very different situation. There aren't as many interpreters or aren't as many people who worked uh, for the Canadian government. But why was it important to uh, to try to find and help them?
4: Well, it's just like Afghan, you know, uh, anybody who's assisted and served and, you know, stepped up to help our, our military, our government, uh, we owe it to them, regardless of who they've served with. And yes, we have been able to get a few of them out. We have two of them on our team right now. We were able to to really get them out of a tricky spot and act more as a, you know, a a counselor, um, you know, a 911 receptionist, you know, during really significant times, getting them from point A to point B, telling them what to do, where to go, get down, there's shelling going on, take this bus, go to this train station, And those were interpreters uh, that that were working for our military and we've got two of them with us and we're looking and you're absolutely right. You know, there's not as many, but there are still folks on our our records that we're still trying to help. But we made it very clear. We're not going just, we're not out there just looking for um, a specific, you know, category of people. Anybody that we can, especially if we go into country with supplies and we have seats open, we're gonna take anybody we can take across the border. The, the the people of Poland have been phenomenal. They're fantastic with the support mechanism. And that, for the most part, that's almost everywhere in Europe right now. But Poland, that's where we're operating out, 12 kilometers, 13 kilometers from the border. And uh, we have a great relationship with the township, and the mayor and all those people and watching what they're doing. So we're gonna go into country, uh, help out as much as we can, and then come on back with, with folks that wanna come on back. And if they want to try to get to Canada, we'll try to help them uh, with the process. There is a good process uh, that has started um, and we will help and guide. And if those that wanna carry on with you know, other countries such as Spain, which we've done already, they'll carry on to Spain or, or UK or Germany or France. Yeah.
0: How, is the, um, how is the coordination on the ground going? Because, of course, we're hearing lots of different initiatives mm-hmm. that are happening from different people in different places. Uh, but how is it coordinated or how are you finding the coordination? How are you able to fit in to it or, 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 take, or sort of not fit into it if need be?
4: Well, I mean, there isn't there isn't one coordination body right now running everything and saying you've got X number of families here and there. And you have so many good people. You've got thousands of people in the country and you've got hundreds of NGOs and hundreds of different other people trying to do the same thing. And with that, you got great networks. And that was the beauty of getting in there in the early stages and building up a good network. Uh, proof of concept is very important that you don't have flyby nights just coming in to grab a t-shirt and say hey look at look what we did and, you know uh, try to raise as much money but come out with a little you know a, a small end and just walk away with that um so it's good to be on the ground it's good to have those networks we have we have different distribution groups and they'll they'll yell out and they'll say hey listen we've got a family of 20 in an area x does anybody have seats to move them out? And we'll put up our hand, and say, yeah, we are. We're in the area and we can get them out. That's the type of network that we have right now. And coordination cell that we have right now.
0: I'm speaking with Dave Labor. He's a founding member of JTF2, the elite counterterrorism unit of the Canadian forces. He's founder of Raven Ray Resources. And right now, after spending uh, the later summer working almost on his own to get uh, many people out of Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul uh, is right now orchestrating something similar uh, from Poland in Ukraine to try to get uh, people out of that country as well, including people who worked for the Canadian government in the past. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about Afghanistan because it's back in the news this week. Afghan interpreters here in Canada on a hunger strike, a one day hunger strike to try to protest the slow movement of visas for their families. We'll get to that after this. I'm back with Dave Lavery. He's a founding member of JTF2, the elite counterterrorism unit of the Canadian Forces. He's the founder of Raven Ray Resources and has worked very hard over the last uh, year, uh, six months at least, to try to bring people out of conflict zones, specifically people who work for the Canadian government, but also others. Uh, That work began in Afghanistan uh, last year and is also now continuing in Ukraine this year. Dave, tell me a bit about uh, just the differences between... The situation in Kabul, as you knew it, uh, what you described in other interviews is a very chaotic situation and what you're experiencing right now and what is sort of an active uh, conventional war in Ukraine.
4: Yeah, I mean, we, we get that, you know, we get that question all the time. Oh, what are the differences? <coughs> Excuse me. How can we compare, you know, the two? Well, you can't compare the two. The only thing that's comparable is the disastrous results and the events themselves, the significant event that takes toll on the families, the disruption, you know, bringing people out of their comfort zone so fast and having them, you know, having them run for their lives with little to nothing of possessions and not knowing where to go, who's going to look after them, etc. So I guess that comparison is there. Now, the enemy is completely different. The enemy we're dealing with now is is a dangerous sophisticated enemy. That we just don't know what their end results and capabilities are. Not to say the other enemy, you know, wasn't wasn't dangerous because they were, but it's it's this has impacted global affairs in a different way, obviously, than the Afghan campaign did. the The actual comparison right now is you see more people engaged, not wanting to flee and and run away. Not to say that the afghans didn't want to fight for their country but the people of ukraine they're not leaving their country and the big difference is their male population is staying in and fighting so that is a big difference and um you know and and the the effect that's actually happening on the people right now with the shelling the continuous shelling the afghans didn't were not exposed during this conflict, anyways, at this point of time, it was a horrific event. It's something that I will never erase from my memory. I can't get the way the smell, the taste, the visuals, you know, the, the, the constant hum of thousands of people in desperation and crying. You just can't get away from that scene in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, Dave. I was going to ask you about that because we had we interviewed two interpreters this week, former interpreters or representatives of them, um, who are still fighting to bring their families here to Canada. They uh, obviously the situation in country is still very dangerous for them, uh, and you saw that firsthand. Take it back to Kabul a bit, and, and and what would you think would be happening now? And how quickly do we have to get them out of there?
4: Well, exactly. I mean. <laughs> Afghanistan is is very uncertain right now. You have the de facto authorities in place, you know trying to, they inherited a country so fast, I think it surprised them. And with inside that government right now, I think they're still unease how they're going to actually settle. How are they going to come to grips? And you can see that right now. I mean, stricter laws and, you know, girls not being able to go to school, shutting down certain things, uh, having regulated dress. Men, you know, working in the government has to have, you know, certain, uh, you know, uh, demeanor, beards, etc. So. I mean, I th- I, you know, when you, when you look at what's actually happening in Afghanistan right now, there's a desperate state that continues. I mean, it was a desperate times. People do desperate things. And now criminality is so high, you know, it's, it's causing a lot of grief for a lot of people. So the uncertainty in Afghanistan is certainly there. The people that are waiting, the applicants that have been waiting so long for the process to carry on from IRCC to get them out of country or to support them, that is demoralizing a lot of our Afghan friends. And and we want to make it very clear right now with the team of Amalora and uh, and a lot of other folks, we haven't forgot about the Afghan campaign. We're still doing the best we can, but we need the support. I mean, the government needs to stand up. Throw a lot more support financially, resource-wise. Give us biometrics. Give us the capability on the ground so we can help. And let's have some political resolve. Let's let's work with the de facto government. Let's have a representing body about you know from Canada on the ground to fast track a lot of this, and that will initiate a lot more you know uh, more end results. But I'd like to also say you know, the good folks of Amalora are still working closely with IRCC, IRCC and Amalora and our team, they are getting people out. You know, we've, I think we moved close to almost 400 people, you know, uh, this month alone, or correction in March, over 400. And prior to that, so we are moving people, but not as fast as we'd like to. And unfortunately, the Ukraine situation, it is top priority for a lot of people
0: right now. Do you ever, I mean, now that we're seven months past and you, if listeners don't know, Dave was known as Canadian Dave on the ground because he was the man to find to help you get out if you had proper documentation at the time. Um, have you ever, have you heard from anyone who came to you back then since and, and what have they told you?
4: Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still in contact with quite a few people that made it to Canada. You know, there's uh, there's some good folks that are back there. They're, you know, they're still struggling because now, you know, they left with nothing. Now they're back in Canada trying to adjust to the Canadian culture. You know, you, you have to realize, you know, they went through the summer, the fall, the winter now, you know, and, 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 so there's been a lot happening, uh, but in a slow pace for them, I guess. And they realize that there's still a lot of family members left behind. Um, they, too, are worried and wondering what's next, uh, what's, what's in store for them. Um, some of them, did we make the right choice in coming to Canada? And um, the answer for me is obviously yes, but uh, I'm not the one in their shoes. So we've had, we've had some discussions. And I know a lot of our people on our teams, they're in close contact with a lot of, a lot of them. And we have a lot of uh, Afghan friends that we got out that are working with Amalora to assist getting other people in contact. So we're in touch with them all, all the time.
0: Dave Lavery, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And keep up the good work and good luck on your trip back to, uh, back to U- Ukraine and Poland. Thank you, Ben. So why did Vladimir Putin decide to invade Ukraine when he did? So many people around the world, if you remember back to uh, about seven weeks ago, so many people around the world thought he wouldn't, were explaining why he wouldn't. Not my next guest. He looked at a leader heading into his 70s, obsessed with his legacy and the unresolved issue in his mind of Ukraine, a country quickly slipping further and further from his influence, a place that he thinks Russia should dominate, combined with his completely inaccurate insus- assumptions about how easy it would be to march in throughout the country's government and be welcomed by the significant Russian-speaking population in the country, he feels, my next guess, that there was no time for Putin like the present. So five weeks later, it has all gone completely sideways for the Kremlin. The master plan turned out to be a dud. Just today, Russian officials are alleging that two Ukrainian military ho- helicopters flew across the border into Russia and bombed a fuel depot in the eastern city of Belgorod. Uh, If confirmed, that would be the first known air raid by Ukraine's forces on Russian soil since it invaded in late February. I think there was one other attack, but this one certainly spectacular and relatively deep inside Russian territory. So with all this going wrong, what lies ahead for Ukraine, for Russia, and for the man at the middle of it all, Vladimir Putin? Joining me now is Dmitry Alperovitch. He's chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank in Washington, D.C., co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike, an American cybersecurity firm. And he happens to be the pundit who knew that Putin was going in. And he joins me now. Dmitry Alperovitch, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I guess we should go back um, a while back now into late last year. and, And you were one of the few out there who was convinced that uh, that Vladimir Putin would, in fact, launch this invasion. I think there was a lot of talk in Canada too that this probably would wasn't going to happen. What convinced you that it would? And 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 uh, you know, was the timing of it a surprise to you at all?
2: No, the timing wasn't a surprise. Uh, the invasion itself was not a surprise. The the way that the the incompetent way that the Russians have prosecuted it. Uh, was somewhat a surprise. I knew they would have a lot of challenges, but I didn't expect them to have this many challenges. Uh, But uh, what convinced me uh, early on was, uh, of course, the buildup of forces that that had taken place over the course of much of last year um, and and very, very significant numbers uh, of both troops themselves as well as equipment that was thrown into the region. And um, the realization that uh, Vladimir Putin had realized that Ukraine was slipping from his grasp that the actions he had taken all the way back in 2014 by grabbing Crimea, by uh, fomenting this insurgency in the Donbass region has done the opposite of what he had intended and uh, pushed Ukraine into the arms of the West, made it much more likely to integrate um, uh, NATO forces and, and training and equipment on Ukrainian soil, even if it um, was unlikely to join NATO itself. And uh, watching very closely his rhetoric over over last year, watching very closely um, the political discourse in Russia, it was becoming very clear to me that he wanted to resolve, quote-unquote, resolve this problem of Ukraine once and for all, and uh, that he thought that he could, um, at a minimum, institute a puppet regime uh, in Kiev that would be pro-Russian and would control at least part of the country. Obviously, a lot of those assumptions have been proven faulty and and certainly uh the way the russians have prosecuted this campaign um they were not achievable uh but um it it was clear to me back in december that they were going to try to do that and um i thought they would do it later in the in the winter um and um you know obviously they ended up launching in late february
0: if you fast forward then five weeks after the the actual invasion uh, what have you made so far of, of what's unfolded and, and specifically now we're seeing, we think we're seeing Russia change tact somewhat, uh, but it's hard to tell just exactly what that tact is. Well, obviously it has been a complete disaster for
2: them on every level, militarily in Ukraine, they've not achieved uh, almost any of their objectives, certainly not the major objectives of taking Kiev and, and then student regime change. Um They've not um, uh, been able to uh, sustain uh, the very severe economic sanctions that are, that, are, that are now being put on the Russian economy uh, in, in the sense that over long term, perhaps not, not the short term, but over long term, um, it will uh, cause very severe impact to Russian industry and even to the Russian military industrial complex by not being able to procure semiconductors, for example, for their advanced weapon systems, for their advanced equipment, uh, will be very, very impactful to them. The, the sanctions, the financial sector will have huge effects over time. Um, and I think they, they totally did not expect that. But in terms of the, the military campaign, we're now seeing um, a shift where it's very clear the Russians are starting to appreciate that their original objectives are not attainable that they will not institute a regime change in in Ukraine, that they just don't have the force structure to do so. And they're trying to figure out a way to come out uh, with a claim of victory here uh, by downsizing their appetite and uh, figuring out what can they do realistically that um, they can spin as a win. And uh, it appears to be the Donbass area enlarging the original DNR and LNR Statelets that they had created back in 2014 to the original borders that those uh, provinces had within Ukraine before uh, the outbreak of the Civil War, um, and potentially grabbing some additional territory in the south in the Kherson Oblast uh, that they have taken that they could potentially annex to Crimea and, and have the connecting bridge uh, between Crimea and, and the Donbass, the so called land bridge to Crimea. So that's their objective now. Uh, but even that is in question. Um, obviously, they've been assaulting the city of Mariupol in the Donbas area now for weeks. Uh, they've destroyed most of that city. Um, it doesn't appear like the Ukrainians will be able to hold out for much longer there. And the Russians are hoping that once that uh, siege is complete, that they'll be able to take those forces and push them up north. And then have the forces um, that have been assembling in the Izum area near Kharkiv come down from the north and they'll be able to envelop the significant forces that the Ukrainians have in that area and and essentially take the Donbass. It's a complicated maneuver, um, given the logistical issues that the Russians have had, given the exhaustion of their forces that have been fighting now for five weeks, given the fact that the Ukrainians do have probably about 50,000 forces in that area. It is not a done deal that they'll actually be able to to execute um, this maneuver successfully. Um, And they'll likely have a very tough fight on their hands uh, confronting the Ukrainian forces. And one of the other problems that they're going to have is that as they're pulling back in the West uh, from the Kiev region and Chernihiv and some of these other places, they're basically freeing up the, the Ukrainian forces that have been holding them back to potentially go into the donbass to, to reinforce the forces there so it, they're facing a very tough position militarily economically and isolation diplomatically with no clear win that they can accomplish in in any foreseeable future
0: you had mentioned though that of course vladimir putin is a man who loves a good parade he loves a good uh, he loves the timing of things you had thought there might be a timeline here to try to achieve what they can achieve declare victory and Perhaps at least a best case scenario for for the Kremlin is to freeze this conflict, uh, take up a bit more of Ukraine's land and then remain a threat and then wait for another day.
2: That's right. Uh, There's some indication that they want to end this uh, hot stage of the conflict uh, by May 9th. May 9th, of course, is Victory Day in Russia. Um, One of the holiest, if you will, um, uh, days on the Russian calendar, the celebration of the victory over over the Nazis, um, a unifying holiday uh, that is celebrated by everyone across the political spectrum. And Putin may want to tie himself to to that uh, holy victory, um, a righteous victory for the Soviet Union and claim that he has once again defeated the Nazis, the so-called Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, in in this in this fight, of course, the problem that he faces is that even if he manages to somehow take the Donbass region and have his land bridge to Crimea, it won't end the conflict. The Ukrainians are not going to accept it. Uh, there's no natural defenses in that um, area. So they're uh, going to be able to flood weapons and to continuously strike at Russian forces from the air with drones, with javelins and NLAW missiles against their armor and uh, with uh, mines and IEDs uh, against their trucks. Um, And the Russians are gonna keep sustaining casualties there. And um, uh, what they're getting getting is really uh, nothing substantial. Um, It is uh, only gonna push the rest of Ukraine further into the arms of NATO, uh, further into the arms of the West. They have created basically permanent enemy on their border because um, even if you had some people before the war that were relatively pro-Russian Ukraine, Most of those people are now squarely in the anti-Russian column, uh, given uh, the atrocities that the Russians have committed, given this horrible, horrible invasion. Uh, The sanctions will not come off of their economy, so they'll continue um, shrinking uh, in terms of their economic potential. And uh, they've lost probably two to three years of military equipment, uh, procurement of military equipment in this uh, fight already. Um, that's going to be really tough to reinforce under um, the economic sanctions um, uh, and um, to, to rebuild that, uh, that capacity without semiconductors
0: and uh, without ability to procure uh, technologies from the West. Right, I'm speaking with Dmitry Alperovitch. He's the chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank in Washington, D.C., also a uh, co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike, an American cybersecurity firm. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the cyber war that doesn't seem to have happened, but remains a threat, I think, uh, to nations such as Canada and the U.S., as well as what may lie ahead for Vladimir Putin and Russia, uh, given the sanctions and given uh, what appears to have been so far at least a disastrous uh, military effort in Ukraine. That's after this. I'm back with Dmitry Alperovitch. He's the chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and the co-founder and former CTO of CrowdStrike, an American cybersecurity firm. Uh, Dmitry, I I guess one of the things we haven't seen much of is the cyber war that we thought would happen. We talked a lot about it beforehand, obviously, with Russia's uh, actions in the past. I think that was a natural uh, conclusion to reach. We haven't seen it much yet, but I saw last week that President Biden issued a bit of a warning. Certainly here in Canada, it's being talked about. Do you think allies of Ukraine are still under threat from some sort of cyber attack from Russia?
2: So one of the other predictions I had made um, uh, before the war was that we would see cyber attacks, um, not necessarily much against Ukraine. I didn't think that that we would see a whole lot against Ukraine. Um, We saw a little bit, um, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I thought that we would see retaliation for the sanctions uh, against the West, that Russia would not take um, uh, those sanctions lying down. And cyber is a perfect way for, for them to retaliate asymmetrically against America, against Canada, against Europeans. Uh, we haven't yet seen that, although the Biden administration, as you mentioned um, about a week ago, warned um, that those attacks may be coming and there's evolving intelligence that the Russians may be preparing for it. Um, I, and I think the timing makes sense uh, as the conflict stabilizes, as it sort of reaching in its, its conclusion um, in, in a sort of semi-frozen state um, and, and most of the major military operations um, st- start to uh, wither away, um, that's the point when it would make sense for the Russians to refocus their attention on the West and to try to figure out how to uh, get rid of these sanctions. Um, I don't think that they will launch those attacks until they realize that the sanctions are not truly coming off. So while there's still hope that there'll be a peace deal in, in the negotiations with the Ukrainians that would uh, give them sanctions relief, they probably do not want to provoke the West, the West. But if those peace talks fail, as they're very likely to do, um, um, they, they, they may focus their attention on critical infrastructure like energy and finance to try to divide this alliance, to try to cause pain for consumers in, in the various countries that are... Obviously, very hurt by these um, high energy prices that we're observing right now.
0: It won't work, but that's how they're thinking in Moscow. I want to ask you a bit about just the impact on Russia. We've, we, we've often talked about it, but for the last five weeks, what we've seen is seemingly from the outside is this complete reversal, or not reversal, but an acceleration towards a very different Russia uh, than perhaps we would have expected to see 15, 20 years ago. Uh, isolated, uh, economically isolated reputationally isolated. Just how profound have the changes been in your mind?
2: You know, it has become a totally different country. Of course, it's been an authoritarian country for much of President Putin's presidency. Uh, the first thing that he did when he came to power was try to shut down media in in Russia. But it has now become a totalitarian country, where there's no independent media left. Um, the first thing they did after the invasion is to shut down the three independent media outlets that still remained, uh, the um, TV station TV Rain, the radio station Echo of Moscow, and the Nova Gazeta, uh newspaper. All of them have been shut down. They were the last independent voices still left in the Russian national media landscape. They have this uh, uh, egregious law that has been passed within days of the war that uh, any spreading of quote-unquote fakes about the military operation, they're not even calling it a war, uh, and someone uh, for 15 years in in a prison colony in Russia, uh, which is having a chilling effect on any sort of public discussion, uh, certainly not even in media, but uh, even just on on the streets in in Russia, uh, um, amongst the population being able to talk and criticize this war. Um, So it, it is going back into the darkest days of the Soviet Union history, the Stalinist era. Thankfully, we're not yet at the point where we're having uh, random uh, firing squads uh, of of dissidents. Uh, But um, obviously, President Putin has engaged in assassinations of his political opponents. And um, we can expect, uh, unfortunately, to see much more brutality, not just against the Ukrainians, but uh, against the Russian population as well.
0: And just in terms of its isolation, it's going to take a very long time, if ever, for Russia to find its way back to where it was. This is a country that relies a lot on foreign expertise for its economy.
2: That's right. Uh, it's important to note that they're not fully isolated, that there's plenty of countries that are still willing to work with them, including countries with huge population, China, India, Pakistan, Brazil, have continued to uh, have strong relations with them. Um, and while most of them are abiding by the sanctions and not willing to violate them for the sake of helping Russia. There's lots of industry that, that has not yet been sanctioned in Russia and lots of opportunities for them to continue trading and, and buying their energy supplies. Uh, but when it comes to the, to the West, yes, they're finding themselves increasingly isolated. And they're hoping that uh, this isolation will not last. They think that if they can end this conflict in a, in a month or so, uh, that the West will be rushing back in because the companies want to make money. Um, they want to uh, work with their oil and gas sector, that the Europeans and others keep want to, wanting to buy their oil and gas, and that this, this can all pass. I think they're misjudging this once again, uh, but that is the thinking in the Kremlin.
0: Dmitri Alperovich, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Well, we're talking about going back to the office today. I know it's Friday night, and maybe you don't want to talk about Monday morning. Maybe you're not going back to the office on Monday morning. Maybe you've already gone back to the office. But we did want to hear from you uh, just about what your experience has been. Has it been good, bad? Are you, If you're not there already, are you looking forward to it? Are you not? If you are there, has it been okay? Uh, let me know, 877 9898 877 Nine nine eight nine eight. Uh, we're also about to welcome Alexandra on. She's the author of Remote Inc. So if you have any questions about uh, going back to work, maybe working hybrid, anything you want to know, let us know, and we'll try and answer those as we go through this next half hour. As I mentioned again, we're talking about going back to work on Monday. For some, I know some people personally are going back to work on Monday. That's why I keep bringing this up. Uh, going back to the office, rather, they've been working the whole time. They just haven't been going to the office. Uh, some, it's been more than two years since they've been gone. Some have spent a few days a week there in the interim, but really we have they haven't had a full office to go back to, uh, that sort of pre-March 2020 office to go back to since then. Well, perhaps you'd be excited. Perhaps it fills you with dread to go back. How do you face the challenges, seize the benefits of returning to the office, and what about all those who aren't going back? With more now on the office as it was, as it is, and as it should be, and whether you should even be there. I'm joined by Alexandra Samuel, author of Remote Inc: How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. And she's in Saskatchewan tonight uh, on on a trip. Alexandra, thanks so much for taking the time, even though you're you're <laughs> yeah. off working. I am
1: this today was my first day of in-person work. Now that I think about it, I, I spoke wow. with an actual live audience of like human beings in a room for the first time in you know two and a half years. How did that go? It was um, you know what? It was not as crazy as I thought it would be. Like I was worried that it would be so disconcerting after, you know, a year and a half of talking about remote work while remote, I thought it would be really um, awkward or uncomfortable to be around other humans. But I forgot, I actually like being around other humans. And, you know, there's an energy. I mean, this is exactly why we're going back to the office, right? There's an energy you get when you're all in the room together. There's the body language, there's the gestures, and it, it just changes what we're able to do together when we are in the same room. I hate to admit it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I won't call you on that, but <laughs> were you, uh, <laughs> were you, were you anxious about it? Did you prep differently? Did you, did you take a long time to pick what you were going to wear? I mean, I was just thinking we were talking oh, yeah. about this the other day. It's been a long time since we've had to wear stuff into an office, into that environment.
1: It totally. In fact, I checked on Facebook. I was like, okay, people who have been in a conference setting in the past six months, what do people wear now? Like, do we wear grown-up <laughs> clothes? But, um, you know what, it, it actually wasn't really any different people. I mean, I'm at a, at an insurance conference in, in Saskatoon and it didn't look like nobody was wearing sweats. Nobody was wearing a ball gown. Um, so it was kind of like any other event.
0: I guess when when we talk about that then, and how did the people react to you? Did you notice that the people were uncomfortable? Is everyone sort of, is it, does it feel a bit like a high school dance or is it less uncomfortable at all?
1: No, I mean, part of what made this such an interesting group to return to is um, a lot of the folks in the room have been working in person, either full time or part time for many months now. So actually, I was kind of the new kid. Um, And it was really interesting to hear what people are still struggling with around um, remote work. And, you know, as I've heard from a lot of groups, as I, you know, because I talk to a lot of organizations now about how to transition to the return to work. And what people are really struggling with is, you know, how do you create a level playing field when we're in an economy where you know 60% of Canadians are in jobs that can't be done remotely because we're a resource-intensive economy. So like in the US, right. it's only 50%. But you know, you can't call into the mine via Zoom. You can't go to the <laughs> logging camp on Teams. So no. a lot of people in Canada still show up for work. And how is it now that we're reopening offices? How do we acknowledge their experience and create workplaces that provide some measure of inclusion for people who are on site as well as for people who've been remote this whole time?
0: Yeah, I was going to, you know, that that's an interesting point because one of the things that was talked about a lot, I remember, um, in return to office environments was trying to maintain that balance between those who, there, those who are there and those who are not. And now that we're moving into maybe a hybrid, more of a hybrid situation, that seems like it would be one of the complexities to try to manage the relationships um, within the office to make sure that people who are remote aren't being left out as the office becomes more and more to some extent like it used to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, really, when we talk about people feeling left out, what we're talking about are kind of two different but related issues. One is how do you create a sense of common culture, purpose, a sense of belonging among your team, even when people are working under very different circumstances and even when some people are not in the office that much? And then the other question is how do we treat people fairly? How do we create paths to advancement, for people of color, for women, for younger employees, lower-skilled employees who've been left out of this remote work story to some degree. And both of those challenges are really crucial for managers and, in particular, HR teams to have on their agendas in this next phase.
0: Yeah, you bring up the idea that the very nature of work has changed somewhat, and we need to make sure that everyone is moving in the same direction to some extent, whether or not they work remotely or not. How How do you do that? That is a very... Because people who don't work remotely, um, it, it does create these kind of different cultures. Even say you have an organization where you have a head office where people work remotely, but you have actual people on the ground working every day, you start to have, I would suspect, you'd start to have different cultures in that, within that mm-hmm. organization.
1: Well, I mean, I think there are organizations that are going to need to rethink their culture and rethink, you know, what is it that really holds us together? Is it is it all about like the fact that we're the fun people who go out for beer after work or is there something deeper that isn't so reliant on us, you know, being in the same space that can maybe bind us together as a team? And, you know, I think, frankly, one of the things that, you know, the the biggest challenge here is also um, our biggest asset, which is it's a very tight labor market there's a very real cost to replacing people who walk either because they want more remote opportunities than they're being offered or because um, they're feeling left behind in an office that is allowing some people to work remote full time. And precisely because there is that cost of replacement, we can put a a dollar value on what it costs to retain people and to keep them engaged and that allows us to do things like invest in maybe a flex day, one day a month, even for people whose jobs basically require them to be on site, just so that people don't feel left out of this kind of work-life rebalance revolution.
0: The the other thing that had come up a lot um, was was this idea sort of, of, of within the office, how do you manage... How do you make sure that people don't perceive that other people are being treated favorably, either by being allowed to work at home more or not? So, that the whole now that people are coming back, trying to maintain that balance you have within your office that's always difficult of trying to make sure that it does feel like a level playing field.
1: Well, I mean, I think we have to remember that um, the office never started as a level playing field. So True. trying to create a sense of fairness and inclusivity is hugely valuable. But, you know, don't romanticize the office of 2019. It was full of unfairness. It was full of bias. It was full of microaggressions. I mean, one of the things that's been hugely interesting about that pandemic is how many people of color have reported feeling like a burden has been lifted because they don't have to deal with some of the real unpleasantness, I mean, to say the least, and, and bias that they had to encounter in the office. Again, people with disabilities who lobbied for years to have more flexibility about their you know, place of work. Well, surprise, surprise, COVID comes along and suddenly all these accommodations that you've been denied for years are being extended to the whole workforce. So, you know, I, I don't think it, it pays to start from imagining some, you know, pristine world in which the workplace was equal. There are going to be some inequalities and some uh, levels of unfairness and resentments in this new workplace. Our goal as managers, as employers, is to try and minimize that and to try and be transparent and and to be open about how those decisions are made to hear how they're affecting people, and to be willing to actually improve and change in response to what we're hearing.
0: And I imagine to take what was really successful about the two years we were all working remotely, and to apply it in a way that makes sense, to take the good of it and try to find (laughs) the good that exists in that communal office situation again. In other words, the best of both worlds, if that's feasible.
1: Absolutely. And to be honest, we actually haven't, for the most part, seen the best of the remote world. I mean, I I am fascinated how many people have really um, taken to remote work in a survey after survey that shows that people want to retain some degree of remote work. I mean, every survey shows that like 70, 80 percent of Canadians who are working remotely want to remain remote at least half the time, if not more. And what's fascinating to me about that is like, this is seriously the worst version of remote work you can imagine. Because like before the pandemic, when you worked remotely, you could go and hang out at a coffee shop. You could meet up with your friends. You could, you know, leave the house without being afraid you're going to die. And all of those things <laughs> made remote work way less stressful. So I like to say to people, boy, if there's if you thought you liked remote work in the past two years, you just wait and see.
0: Yeah, my eternal memory of remote work is sort of using at the very early days using like a garden table, sitting on a couch Ugh. with like cushions and what had to be the lead, the postopedic nightmare, right? uh, and then sort of try to suffer through that through a few days, and then cutting my own hair. That was the those are my memories yes. of early days yes. of remote work. Um, <laughs> we'll be back in just a second with Alexander Samuel, uh, author of Remote Inc. and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. I was going to ask you just a bit about a bit more about what we're seeing in terms of trends going forward. Uh, and we were going to ask you a bit about, because we talked about it already, those who are anxious about going back. And I know this isn't always your realm, but now that you've went gone back today yourself, I'm interested again to know if you have any advice to people who are worried about going back to the office and all that entails. Uh, we'll be right back. And we're talking work with Alexandra Samuel, author of Remote Inc. How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, and a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about uh, it was Alexandra's first day today, back in front of a live audience, so to speak. So we were talking a bit about that anxiety. I mentioned I was speaking to you. We asked around about things people would like to talk about. And one of them was anxiety about not just going back to work, but also going back to the office rather, but also being surrounded by people at at the office because other people have been working on their own for a bit in sort of relatively empty offices. I did that for quite a while. So you start to feel a little insecure when you start to start, when you start to having to share the space again, because it's going to be different. It's going to be very loud. I fear.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the noise, because that is one of the things that um, a, and a lot of people talk about around the office, right, is the sound, um, the distraction of having, you know, other people around you during the day. And, you know, it's funny, I was just talking to somebody at TELUS the other day with a support call, and it was exactly that. He was saying, you know, he's worked in the office, actually, all the way through COVID out of preference, but it's been delightful because he can hear himself talk. But, you know, once the office reopens, there's going to be all of these other people in the office in the surrounding cubicles. And that's just just makes your job a lot harder. And, you know, my hope, honestly, is that this is actually going to inform the way we reopen the, our offices and think about our schedules. Right. If you bring people back to the office two days a week as opposed to five days a week, you can keep people a little more spaced out, which is not only, you know, potentially beneficial from a a health point of view, but also just like a noise point of view, overwhelm, sensory load. Uh, You know, we're, we're used to being packed in a little bit in modern offices in a way that maybe isn't the best for our mental health.
0: I was going to say for the for the anxiety aspect of this, what would you say to people who are feeling a little tense about going back to work? We just spoke to someone in the last half hour who had to go back to work after uh, putting on quite a bit of weight. She'd written an article about it mm-hmm. even to to talk mm-hmm. about it. You went back today having not been in front of a live audience for a bit. What do you think the key to to trying to settle your nerves is?
1: Well, I mean, I think the the most important thing is to realize that literally everybody is nervous. Like, I, There are people who Um, when they're back, realize, oh, yeah, like, I missed this. I like this. It's not that scary. But I haven't talked to anyone who isn't nervous about at least the idea of returning to the office. And so, you know, the more that we can be open about that shared struggle, I mean, it has two benefits. First of all, it's always easier to handle your anxiety when you name it. I mean, there's nothing that's more anxiety producing than trying to pretend you're not anxious. But also in narrating our kind of shared experience of anxiety, we create an opportunity for real human connection, which is actually the whole reason we're coming back to the office. So, you know, the best thing that employers can do is actually facilitate those conversations so that they happen. You know, bring in consultants, psychologists, team coaches who are there To give a little bit of space for people to acknowledge what's challenging and also, frankly, to act as a little bit of a scaffold for people whose social skills may have gotten a little bit rusty. I mean, you know, my husband's a lovely guy, but he doesn't reflect every human being I need to interact with in the course of a normal work week. And so I know that I could use a little help remembering what it what it looks like to have a conversation with people who are not related to me. (laughs)
0: Right. Just because we all had to leave the office in a big hurry doesn't mean we all have to go back in a big hurry, I think was the, uh, and the last thing that came up a lot was dress codes because we were talking about, well, what do you wear to the office now? Because I figured like, I I have this sort of collection of neckties I don't think I'm ever going to wear again Mm -hmm. uh, now that I'm on the radio. So they've all been kind of sitting there. Do you think dress codes have changed fundamentally and forever where we're going to, we're going to sort of say, you know what, I was actually much more comfortable those two years than wearing something that is completely uncomfortable to wear and try to do my Job at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's pretty clear. Um, I mean, there certainly are places that have not shifted very much in dress code, but there are also an awful lot of places that have, and you know, for good reason. I mean, not only um, is it is it a little bit dated and frankly expensive to wear all those suits and fancy dresses, but there is like a sensory load. Uh, You know, I have to say, I, I only became aware of it because I have a kid who's autistic. And after I started buying him clothes that people recommended as sensory friendly, I started trying them myself and it's incredible how much energy it frees up when you're not like scratching at the itchy tag on the back of your neck all day. So I think it's, it's great for us to move towards more comfort. The reality is, you know, in a world where there's less and less face-to-face with clients um, or where your clients are wearing sweats too, you know, why not? Um, And, you know, again, I think this is a little bit about us as a society um, taking the opportunity of a a kind of unique and unfortunate shakeup to think about which aspects of the old world we want to return to and which ones we're ready to retire and move beyond.
0: (laughs) So you might want to return to this new world in a in a pair of sweats or at least, I mean, they make yeah. some pretty nice looking comfy clothes these days, totally. I have to say. It's not, uh, I, I I know nothing about, uh, I, I will have to save this for another time, but I know nothing about sensory friendly clothing. It's a fascinating mm-hmm. thing. I'll have to look it up.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I will say like, I don't get me wrong, I miss my nice clothes and I was so excited to come on the road and like, I had these clothes that I bought before COVID that I literally have never worn. Um, So, you know, again, you know, people enjoy wearing nice clothes and experience it as a a form of self-expression. But there's a big difference between, you know, wear something pretty or handsome or attractive if you feel like it and, you know, wear what's cozy and boring if that's what you feel like. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we've gotten used to perceiving each other more in terms of our content and less in terms of our presentation.
0: Alexandra Samuel. It's always a joy to speak with you. Have a great rest of your trip in Saskatoon. Congratulations on your first day back, uh, (laughs) back in front of a bunch of people. I'm glad it went so well.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ben.